They stole 30 years of this man's life, of his wife's life, of his four young children's lives that they can never bring back. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. This is Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi. My normal co-host, J. Craig Williams, is away this week, but we're glad you could join us. Uh, I, of course, write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law, and uh, Craig writes the blog, May It Please the Court, out of California. I'd like to thank our sponsors this week, SunTrust, a company that offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms. Find out more about them at suntrust.com slash law. And also Clio, the web-based practice management uh, program, which you can find at goclio.com. Well, uh, the news this week is full of talk about Elena Kagan, the Supreme Court nominee. Uh, we're going to talk today about a case that uh, perhaps is uh, at best a, a footnote on, on her biography, but uh, it was very, very important to the people who were involved in it uh, and to the people whose lives it affected. Uh, Joe Salvati of, of Boston spent nearly 30 years in prison as an innocent man. The final chapter is now being written of that story, a story of one of the worst cases of injustice and wrongful imprisonment ever written. After years of legal twists and some unbelievable turns, just this week, the Justice Department has declined to appeal to the Supreme Court uh, a $101.7 million uh, award for Joe Salvati and three other men, uh, Louis Greco, Henry Tamelio, and Peter J. Lamoni, and uh, who were all wrongfully accused back in 1965 for the murder of Edward Teddy Deegan. Their convictions were ultimately overturned in 2001. Uh, sadly, two of the men died while still in prison. Over the years, the case has been covered nationally and locally, uh, including from any number of reporters around here, uh, Jonathan Saltzman of the Boston Globe, Peter Gilzinas from the Boston Herald, and uh, notably Dan Ray from WBZ-TV, who kept, uh, kept this case in the public spotlight. Uh, it was uh, U.S. District Judge Nancy Gertner who ordered the government to award these four men a damage judgment in 2007, blasted the FBI for its role in, in this case, saying that uh, Judge Gertner said this case is about intentional misconduct, suborning of perjury, the framing of innocent men. Uh, that, uh, uh, that award from Judge Gertner was affirmed by the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and it was that uh, that the uh, that Elena Kagan's uh, as solicitor uh, general of the United States this week uh, decided uh, not to uh, pursue an appeal of. Well, we're going to find out a lot more about this case uh, with with two two men who uh, really are, are, were kind of heroes in this case. Uh, 
Uh, notably, both of them are lawyers. Uh, ironically, perhaps one of them uh, uh, one of them uh, acted in this case as an advocate. The other, as as an investigative journalist and reporter, uh, covering this case over the years. So let me introduce each of them uh, and uh, bring them into the program. And starting first off with uh, attorney Victor J. Garrow. Uh, Victor Garrow was Joe Salvati's lawyer for more than 30 years. He's an attorney based in Medford, Massachusetts. He believed from the beginning of this case that, uh, that Mr. Salvati was was uh, innocent of, of these charges. Uh, he spent decades making everybody else believe it, championing the case uh, with incredible tenacity and doing it all Pro bono, he has been recognized for his efforts, uh, not just uh, not just in the courts, but uh, with awards from the American Bar Association and and elsewhere. He's he's uh, the kind of lawyer I think uh, most of us uh, in the profession aspire to be. Uh, welcome to the program, Victor Garrow. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, also joining us today, uh, returning guest, uh, host of his own nightly talk radio show on WBZ Radio in Boston, Dan Ray. Dan is uh, is an attorney uh, by training uh, and, and a journalist by profession who's covered countless court cases on the local, state, and national level. Uh, the Massachusetts Bar Association, the Massachusetts Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, among others, have honored Dan Ray for his investigative journalism uh, and particularly his role in helping to shine the spotlight on the Salvati case and uh, having uh, helped contribute to uh, bringing about the eventual uh, freedom of Joe Salvati. So, uh, Dan Ray, welcome to the program. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, Victor, uh, let me just start with you. I mean, this is uh, 30 years uh, of your life. You've you've fought this case, uh, and now uh, it appears uh, the end has been reached. Uh, how, how does it feel? <laughs> Uh, how do well, you? How, what are you thinking right now about well, let me all of tell this? You, sometimes, like it feels like it's surreal. Uh, I got involved with Joe Silvati uh, approximately in 1977, so I've been involved in the case over 33 years, and I've spent anywhere from 25 to 30 thousand free hours of my time uh, because this was a family that uh, could not afford legal representation. And uh, it, the when I first met him in prison. Uh, and I have been I've been a trial lawyer for about forty five years. Uh, I didn't I asked him I didn't ask him if he was innocent. I said, Joe, uh, tell me the evidence at the time of trial. Tell me who the witnesses were, et cetera. And uh, from the first three hours I spent with him in prison, um, I felt there was something wrong with the case. And uh, I like just to make a statement, if I could, Bob. Please do. That. Um, there was a lot of good lawyering in the case. Look, I'm not the best lawyer in the world. I'm not the best trial lawyer in the world, but I persevered. But if it was not for Dan Ray's help in this case, even with all the evidence that I found and all the back-breaking work that I did and all the monies that it cost me, Joe Silvati and the others might still be in prison, and the others who died in prison would be remembered as potentially organized crime figures. It was, it was the power of the press, and I realized that back in uh, 1993 when uh, the three most important words that I believe that an individual can use today as well as lawyers is that my strategy is. And my strategy was to get the press involved because things were being said about my client that were untrue, and uh, the power of the press is just unbelievable. 
And so my strategy was to treat this as a family tragedy, not about a story about organized crime, because that's what the federal government and the state government had made this case about, that it was an organized crime hit. My client had nothing to do with organized crime. And the evidence that we brought into trial for the uh, um, 22 or 23 actual trial days showed that he was not a member of organized crime, and the FBI and others knew that he was innocent. But And sometimes, Bob, and I say this for the, lawyer, for the people out there who are lawyers, that the use of the press is, 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 is unbelievably strong. And I cringe when I hear of lawyers saying they have no comment when the press wants to talk to them. Because most of the time, the government, if it's a criminal case, they will try to put statements out there so as to hurt the potential uh, of the uh, defendant to get a fair and impartial jury. Because they're saying those words to infuriate uh, the, uh, the populace so that if they become jurors in the case or they know about it, they already have a preconceived notion that these guys have to be guilty. And so I, I talk around the country as a motivational speaker, and I talk to many lawyers and to law firms, and I try to explain to them and show that the press is very important. They shouldn't hide from the press. You can be ethical, and you can be legal, and you can use strategy on how that, that, that can help you to combat uh, misstatements by the, uh, by the prosecutors. And Dan was, uh, has been tremendous in this role. As a matter of fact, when I first saw him, I said, Dan, I want to talk to you about the most unbelievable miscarriage of justice in the history of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And uh, let him tell you what he, what he said to me when that happened. Dan, why don't well, you tell him? Well, I was going to say, I mean, I'm willing to bet that any number of lawyers uh, have, have made attempts to, to get the right reporter involved in the case or to get a reporter's interest in a case at this level. Is, I mean, Dan, what, what struck you when you first heard about this case? What got you in, involved in it? Well, it was the, the dean of both Victor, the law school from which both Victor and I graduated. Uh, we did not know each other in law school. We were a few years apart. Uh, but the then dean of Boston University Law School, Ron Cass, sort of summoned me for command performance or command appearance when the dean of your law school uh, invites you to come and meet someone uh, on the campus. If you're an alumni, uh, an alumnus, you, you show up. And when I met Victor, and Victor told me that he had the story of the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and realizing, you know, our state's history with Sacco Vinzetti, for example, I thought, well, maybe this guy's tapioca. Uh, but I, I, I had to sit there and listen to his tale, which at a minimum intrigued me. I then spent um, weeks going over documents, trial documents, transcript, etc., and sufficient uh, questions were raised in my mind uh, that, that forced me to uh, investigate further. I eventually became convinced that at a minimum, uh, Salvati and the others had not received a fair trial, and the more questions uh, that I asked, it seemed, uh, the more questions that were raised in my mind, and ultimately, through a long process, I became convinced uh, that Joe Salvati uh, and three others were innocent. I focused on Joe's case because Victor had introduced me to the case, uh, and I felt that Joe Salvati, who had no criminal background whatsoever, uh, if if we were unable to secure justice for him, uh, then justice could never be secured for the other men who all did have you know some some prior um, problems with the law. And Joe was really a uh, an innocent uh, 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 lamb being led to slaughter here by the lies, the, the perjured testimony 
of, of an FBI informant, Joe Barbosa, with the knowledge of FBI agents, which eventually were proven. And this was a guy who uh, the biggest mistake he made was borrowing $400 from the wrong person and not paying it back quickly enough. And that's why Barbosa dragged him in here uh, as a criminal defendant in a case that Barbosa knew Salvati had nothing to do with. What's the, not all of our listeners are going to be familiar with this case. Dan, could you just give us a the nutshell of what was involved here? Yeah, the nutshell, and, and, and Victor could do it probably better than I could, but it's a, it's a 1965 murder, which probably could have been solved on the night of the murder, uh, but it wasn't. Um, the uh, m- men were taken into custody that night who had indeed been involved in the, uh, in the murder, and uh, yet the uh, Chelsea Police Department at the time chose not to prosecute the case. Uh, a couple of years later, a fellow named Joe Barboza, who killed about 35 to 40 people reportedly in his career, uh, found himself in jail in Boston, uh, and an unscrupulous FBI agent named H. Paul Rico uh, conspired with Barbosa uh, to, um, to to basically make a case against uh, six individuals, two of whom actually had been involved in the murder, four of whom were not involved in the murder. Uh, Rico told Barbosa that he wanted uh, two people, Henry Tomelio and Peter Lamoni. Uh, and that if Barbosa would give him perjured testimony regarding those two individuals, Barbosa then could not only take out people who were with him on the night of the murder, uh, his 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 close friends and compatriots, but he also could select two people who he had a grudge against and uh, and throw them into the into the murder conspiracy, uh, and which is exactly what he did, uh, and. Uh, uh, the trial went on uh, three years later in uh, 1968, and the the convictions came down. And uh, at that point, uh, you know, Joe Barboza had done his dirty work. He was placed in the in really the Federal Witness Protection Program. He was really the poster child uh, for the Federal Witness Protection Program, the progenitor, if you will. Uh, he was the first member of the Federal Witness Protection Program. Uh, he was placed uh, out in Santa Rosa, California, where he actually, while a member of the uh, Federal Witness Protection Program, murdered an innocent individual. Uh, the FBI agents went out there and testified and were prepared to testify on behalf of his trial. Uh, so, so this was an ongoing conspiracy. Ironically, the lead report, the lead um, FBI agent was H. Paul Rico, which, of course, uh, is, not, is not named for the for the racketeering statute, but it is sort of <laughs> ironic that the uh, the same initials of the Rico statute were the last name of this corrupt FBI agent, who himself, by the way, died in a Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, city jail uh, back uh, uh, in the uh, in the late. Uh, rather in the in the earlier uh, part of this decade, having been charged with the murder of an Oklahoma businessman, so it's a it is a long uh, and tangled web, uh, which began with an incredible amount of FBI corruption right here in the Boston office of the FBI. Bob, one of the things yeah. that I that I talk about, and I've been on sixty minutes several times, and others, um, you can you can boil it down to the following: that the federal government knew that my client was innocent. They they hid evidence on his innocence. They allowed the state to ask for the death penalty, knowing that he was innocent, and then did everything they could to prevent me from getting him out on parole because dead men tell no tales. If he dies in prison, then there'd be no guy like me around or Dan to bring about the real truth in this case. And it's a it's an amazing story because of the following also. Joe Silvati, at the time he was arrested on October 25th of 1967, had a wife and four young children, four, seven, nine, and 11. And the FBI and the federal government determined 
that it was more important for them to protect their murderous informants than it was to protect an innocent man who had four young children and a wife, because this was never a search for the truth, the truth be damned. All they wanted was to have informants giving them evidence against organized crime people in their war against the mafia. And, and where were you in the case when you, when you realized this? I mean, at what point did you come to be aware that there was this conspiracy? Well, that, that was the first day. Uh, Salvati had been in prison about 10 years before I got involved in the case. I got involved in the case in 1977. When he, when he uh, spoke to me for the first, uh, first time I met him, and it was like just being in the movies, by the way. I believe it went on a Saturday morning. It was raw, rainy, cold, dreary, dark day. And I met him in prison, and I spent about three or four hours. And uh, he told me the story. It just didn't make sense to me. Uh, how, and there was only one witness against him. And there were three things, and I won't have the time to go into it in the program, but timing, getaway car, and disguises were the three things that always bothered me in the very first time that I ever met Joe Salvati. And then, as Dan did, I did my own research and my own due diligence, and then I kept finding out more and more evidence. And as a fact, many of my um, criminal defense uh, 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 friends, lawyers, had said to me, are you nuts? You're a one-man law officer, one secretary. You're going to take on what, the whole FBI? You're take on the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Organized Crime Section of the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Attorney General's Office in Washington, the FBI offices in Washington. You're going to take on the state government. You're going to take on the district attorney. You're going to take on the local police departments. You go, we are one lawyer with one secretary. He says, doesn't matter. There's something wrong here in this case. And it has proven out after 33 years that everything that I ever said and everything that Dan and I brought out and talked about all came true. And the bottom line here is what Judge Nancy Gertner wrote, and if I could just quote it, but it was only two sentences. Please do. The FBI was responsible for the framing of four innocent men. They suborned perjury and suppressed exculpatory evidence at trial and thereafter for the next 30 years. I have said many times in public, since this took, his, he got arrested in October 25th of 1967, the government has played hide-and-seek with this evidence for well over 40 years. And so at some point this turned from, after you were dealt with the criminal issue and, and you were able to get him exonerated uh, far too late, uh, really, in this process, then it became a, a civil proceeding and, and you went after monetary damages. Well, there was a, there was a small step in between. Um, all charges were dropped against my. I got my. I, uh, my client walked out of prison with the help of Dan and myself on March 20th of 1997. My strategy was to get him out on a parole commutation first, and then to prove his, his innocence after that. Although I was accumulating, Dan and I were accumulating evidence during this period of time to show that he was innocent. Also, so when I when he, when I got him out of prison, uh, Dan and I went after more evidence, and we found more evidence. So that all charges were dropped in uh, January th on January 30th of 2001, and at that time the reporters had all said to me, you know, Vic, this is going to be the greatest day of your life. You, after all these years, you've been proven truth the, uh, that what you've been saying is truthful, and he was really framed. And I said, no, just the opposite. It's the saddest day of my life. Don't you understand what this really means? They stole 30 years of this man's life 
of his wife's life, of his four young children's lives that they can never bring back. This is nothing to be greatly happy about. They stole this man's best years of his life. Now, about a week and a half after the decision came down, I held a press conference. And in that press conference, I said, this case requires a congressional investigation. Now, I know there were many people in the federal government, the state government, who were laughing like hell about me and said, yeah, that's right. And then that, was, that took place on February 8th of 2001. And guess what, Bob? On May 3rd of 2001, I was testifying in Congress before the House Government Reform Committee testifying about the criminal activities of the FBI in Boston. It no longer was a joke then. Three months after I said this requires a congressional investigation, it lasted for two and a half years, the investigation. And Dan Burton, who was chairman of the, that committee at that time, likened what the FBI did to my client, his wife, and children as an act of domestic terrorism. Dan, uh at what point, I mean, was there a turning point in this case for you? Uh, tell us about some of the twists and turns that you encountered in reporting this. I think the, the, the moment that I knew um, Salvati was innocent, uh, what had happened uh, at one point in our, one of our earliest meetings, Victor gave me a copy uh, of the Chelsea police report that had, that had been assembled on the night of the crime. And most lawyers know that the uh, the initial police report in any um, uh, you know criminal investigation really is sort of the uh, the tabula rasa, if you will, that uh, that that you begin with. Uh, it basically tells someone called in, shots were fired, they responded to a scene, they found a body or some you know whatever that is. Well, um, that um, Victor gave me a copy of that police report. I wasn't sure if it was a pasted together copy. I didn't think that Victor necessarily would have given me a, a, a copy without bona fides, but I wanted to make sure it was a legitimate copy. So I I went to the Chelsea Police Department, met with a lieutenant over there who was uh, an acquaintance of mine, and asked him how le- how long back, how far back did they keep files uh, on uh, on cases like this? And he said, well, I don't, I don't know. What, how far back do you want to go? I said, 1965. He said, give me a couple of days, I'll call you back. Uh, he went up to the attic an hour later in the old Chelsea Police Station, found the, the actual file with photographs of the murder scene, photographs of the, of the victim sprawled in blood, along with... The original police report, which was an exact copy of what Victor had given me. That point, I went back and reviewed the transcript and realized that the original police report named a different set of killers. Uh, it would have been manna from heaven for any competent defense lawyer, and these people did have competent defense attorneys at the time of trial, and yet none of this ever was used. Uh, uh, in the, I could find no evidence of this in the transcript. So it just so happened that the fellow who at the time of trial was the chief investigator in Suffolk County, the chief homicide investigator, and remember, the FBI in those days brought this case to the state authorities because murder was not a federal crime in those days. They basically brought Barboza and handed him on a silver platter to the Suffolk County prosecutors who prosecuted uh, the murder case. Um, I had several conversations with this fellow named John Doyle, who I had come to know later in his career when he's the superintendent-in-chief of the Boston Police Department. Uh, my initial conversations with him 
Uh, he was quite friendly to me and said to me, Dan, you're just wasting your time. Everyone has looked at this case. As time went on over a period of two or three weeks, the conversations became more testy. Uh, as I finally, you know, approached him and said, John, there was no police report available uh, at the trial. I, I, you know, uh, that, that to me is amazing. I've gone through the testimony and these were competent attorneys. The police report, the actual document named an entirely different set of killers. You would think that some one of the attorneys might have asked uh, on cross-examination, uh, Barboza, you know, with this document, he says, Dan, you don't get it. The, the police report was lost. It, it was, the, the murder was in 65. The trial was in 68. The conversations, again, became more testy. I wanted to make sure that, that Doyle was not going to double back on me uh, and say, oh, no, you misunderstood. We had the police report, but they didn't want it. So finally, uh, I, I got him on my final phone conversation with him, called his home one night. His wife put him on the phone. And I said, uh, John, I just want to make sure you never saw the police report. And at that point, it was a stream of expletives deleted. And I, I said, John, I got some bad news for you. I have the police report. Uh, and I want to bring it over and show it to you. So my question to you, Bob, would be, what do you think he, he would have said to that to that invitation? <laughs> his his uh, response uh, his, his, his response was, I don't want to see it. Yeah. Uh, that was my last conversation with him. I knew with that if I had been a prosecutor, he would have received a target letter the next day. Yeah. I knew at that point that. Um, that this trial was not on the level, and I knew that that um, that police report uh, had been lost, suppressed. Somehow, the original filed it back into the tri into the uh, into the case file, dead in the attic of the Chelsea Police Department, uh, and we were able to locate it. But that convinced me that um, games were played with the criminal justice system uh, at the price of 30 years for Joe Silvati and 109 years for the four men in total. Bob also. Um, when I, I received a copy of that uh, police report, it was approximately uh, two to three months prior to uh, the parole board hearing uh, in 1989 about my client. Um, I have never disclosed how I got it, nor will I, and many people want to know how I received it. Um, when I showed that report at the, at the uh, parole board hearing, you could hear a pin drop in the room, and the jaws of all five, four or five members of the parole board fell about a foot and a half, and they saw it. They couldn't believe their eyes, and uh, I had known uh, and talked to many of these parole board members for years because I wanted them to know who I was, and they knew I was an advocate for Joe Savati. They couldn't believe it because it then showed that he had nothing to do with the case. And we got a unanimous vote of the parole board for his commutation parole. Victor and Dan, stay with us. We're going to take a short break right now, but we'll be back in just a few moments to continue the conversation. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use. 
allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all the great legal podcasts. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. J. Craig Williams is away this week. We are joined by our guests, attorney and journalist Dan Ray and attorney Victor J. Garrow, who championed the innocence of Joe Salvati and fought to prove the government had wrongly convicted and imprisoned Salvati and three other men for decades. Uh, Victor, I, I mentioned uh, the, uh, President Obama's uh, Supreme Court nominee, Elena Kagan, at the outset of this. Uh, I, I understand that you uh, went to Washington to speak with, with Kagan about uh, this case and, and to ask her not to appeal. Do I have that right? If so, can you tell well, me about I, that I conversation? You, we had. Uh, I did not go personally. I had brought in another law firm with me in uh, from Connecticut, uh, Austin McGuigan. Uh, he and I grew up here in Medford together, and uh, I brought him in because he had investigated the FBI uh, several years ago. He was formerly like the attorney general down in um, in Connecticut for about 17 or 18 years. And uh, uh, three or four lawyers went down to Washington. I was not one of them uh, because they could, they would only see so many. And uh, we made our case. Uh, we did not meet with the Solicitor General herself. We met with the with the uh, associate uh, who was handling the case, and uh, we made our presentation of what we thought the law was, uh, and uh, it seems that that carried the day because the Solicitor General decided not to appeal this case. And I'd like to say to everybody that's out there, uh, this was a courageous act by the Solicitor General. There is no doubt that she was under major pressure from the FBI and the Justice Department to not to go forward with this case, because this case has been about delay, 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 deny, deny, deny for decades. And she and her staff had reviewed the law and finally came to the conclusion that the First Circuit Court of Appeals came to twice, by the way, in this case that uh, we were correct in our interpretation of the law and the Justice Department was incorrect and had the courage and the guts to say, no, it ends here. And I thought that was a very courageous act of a solicitor general who is now being, has been nominated for a Supreme Court justice. I think it's also, I think it's also important to mention, and, and, and Victor would confirm this, that um, the solicitor general's office had asked for an extension of, I believe it was 60 days, Victor? Yes. In order to uh, make their final decision. And, of course, when that extension was requested, 
my instinct was, well, the only reason they're asking for an extension is they're going to uh, uh, to try to, uh, you know, secure a certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and so I was surpri- as surprised as anyone, pleasantly surprised as anyone on April 30th uh, when the Solicitor General's office decided to end the case. Uh, and uh, in the words of T.S. Eliot, ends ends sort of with a whimper as opposed to a bang. And, and you know, we, we talked about the money here and, and the fact that money money really can't make up for Absolutely what not. was lost. But we, tell us about Joe Salvati. I mean, where is he now and, and what is sure. his reaction to all of this? Sure. Uh, Joe still lives down the north end of Boston, which is the Italian section of Boston. He lives in a subsidized apartment. It's uh, about 700 square feet. Uh, he has been very active with his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Uh, they live a very uh, Spartan life. Uh, the uh, war, uh, He loves his uh, kids. They have a very close family. To show you how close the family was, Bob, if I could, because this will show something about the family. Uh, I used to go and visit Mrs. Salvati and the children um, uh, about every four months because they lived on the four little letters that I gave them, H-O-P-E, because I was the only one in the 70s and 80s that had their interests at heart. Dan did not come t- uh, on with me till 93. And so I used to talk to them all. One door would close. I said, well, this is the strategy that will open up another door. So one of the times that I was at Mrs. Salvati's small little apartment, I noticed that, that there was a card on top of the TV. So I didn't see any, any, I didn't say anything the first time I went or the second time or third. But finally, about my fourth or fifth time I went there, I said, Marie, I said, um, what is that on top of the TV? I see there's a card there. She says, yes, it is. I said, can I go over and look at it? She says, absolutely. So I went over there, and I looked at the card, and it was a love card. I said, Marie, can I look in it? She said, certainly. And in it, there was a personal statement from Joe uh, to his wife. And I said to Marie, Marie, tell me about this. Well, she says, every Thursday, my husband sends me uh, a romantic card, and I receive it on Friday. And I put the new card on top of my TV set. That way, when I'm walking around, uh, if I feel lonely, I feel that Joe is with me. And that's how we kept our love life together all the years that we were separated. And I said, what have you done with the cards, Marie? She says, I have kept every one of these cards in shoeboxes tied with a ribbon. And she still has them to this day. And she says, and she cried when she said it to me, she says, I feel like my life has been lived in a shoebox because that's how we kept our love life. She brought the children to see their father every other week. And it would sometimes, in prison, would take two to three hours for her just to get there. And at one time, he even said to Marie, I could be in the rest of my life if you want to divorce me. You get divorced, she says, no, honey. She said, we did this for better or for worse for the rest of our lives. I would never leave you. She never did, and she never has. If there's one of my heroes in life, it's uh, Mrs. Salvati, because she then had to go get a job. She had to learn how to drive a car. She had four young children. She kept the children together, provided a, a decent home for them, God bless her, and still visited her Joe every week so that he wouldn't be without her. And they made a pact that 
she wouldn't tell him the problems that were going on at home, and he would not tell her the problems in prison. And there's one further story that I have to say. You know, sometimes kids can be very cruel. And one of the children, one of his children, who was about nine years of age, had visited him, I guess, in prison, and says, Dad, uh, the kids tell me that you're going to get a present. And he says, oh, yeah, what, dear? What did they say that I'm going to get? They said you're going to get an electric chair. Dad, what's an electric chair? What does that mean? Now, how do you explain that to a nine-year-old? Joe then went back to his cell that night and didn't come out for about a day and a half because all he did was cry. The government doesn't want you to hear these stories because to them it's just papers and papers. But to myself and Dan, who have fought for these people for low these many years, it's about a family tragedy, and it's about a family strength, love, and devotion that kept together through 30 years of turmoil. God bless them. We, we received a $31 million verdict uh, for Joe Savati and his family. Now with interest, it's about $33.5 million. And for people who keep track of these things, we've been told it's the largest single award in the history of the United States for a wrongful imprisonment case. Well, it's an amazing story all around, an amazing story uh, of your effort uh, over many, many years, uh, pro bono all along the way of of, uh, incredible uh, reporting work by Dan Ray. Well, we're getting towards the end of the program, and and I do want to give you each an opportunity to to kind of share your, your closing thoughts on that. And Dan, let's hear from you. I don't know if you want to comment at all on, on what Victor was just saying, but I'd like to hear your, your final thoughts on this story, if, if there's a sure. final thought to be shared. Sure. Well, you know, for me, uh, it was the story. I, I worked for 31 years for the CBS affiliate in Boston, WBZ-TV, and uh, I, I did a lot of stories. I put people in jail with some of my stories. This, this is the first uh, individual that I can honestly say helped uh, get out of jail. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training. I'm a member of the bar, and I maintain my, my uh, active status as an attorney. Uh, but I probably spent more time uh, working on this story uh, than, than anything that I ever did while I was an active. Um, practitioner, and I was very active in the 70s uh, and 80s. Um, but this is a, this was really the story of, of my career. My last day on television, I was able to fortunately time it was July 26, 2007, which was the day that Judge Gertner issued her uh, opinion uh, and her award of 101 million dollars to these innocent men. So that innocent men that night, um, I walked out of my television uh, studio and walked in over to WBZ Radio, where I now host a. Uh, uh, a talk show Monday through Friday from 8 to midnight. We deal with a lot of these issues, um, a lot of issues like this. Uh, and anyone who wants to listen to the talk show, uh, Monday through Friday, 8 to 10, East Coast time, WBZ.com. We stream live uh, that radio station 24-7, and you can pick us up anywhere in the United States. It's also is a pretty powerful um, you know, powerful signal. What I would simply say is, yes, I believe in the court of law, and I believe in the criminal justice system, but there's also a court of public opinion. Uh, that lawyers would be, um, in my opinion, uh, well-advised to understand and and work through in a case like this so that cases like this, uh, and and this, of course, is a case that eventually went through federal court uh, where no television cameras are allowed. Uh, This case is well-known here in New England, uh, and it's well-known because of the amount of oxygen it received uh, through my television reports. And I think, again, the court of public opinion very important venue for any lawyer 
to uh, at least be aware of as he or she continues with their law practice. Victor, uh, you get the final word today. Let's hear from Thank you. Thank uh, you. Many people have asked me, what does this case really stand for, Victor, this victory? And a couple of things I'd like to say. If uh, if it really was a David and Goliath story, this is it. I have uh, It's a one-man love. It's myself and my secretary, who has been with me 32 years and been involved in this case with me from the very beginning. And this is just a victory for the little guy. You know, just because you're not a man of power, position, or means doesn't mean that your life is not important to your loved ones or in society. This is a situation where the, the government could not break the spirit of this family, nor myself. And what, what it stands for is never give up. As long as you're alive, as long as you can go and try to prove your innocence, you prove it, no matter what we do in life. And what we do in life, and I talk about this all the time, is the three most important words, and I'd like to end with this, is that three most important words are, I love you are very important, and I understand that. But the most important words are my strategy is. Because if you don't have a strategy, you don't get the girl that you love or the man that you want to marry. You don't get the job. You don't get that case. You don't get that result. You have to have a strategy. And my strategy here was to promote this as a family tragedy and not about organized crime and to bring the press in so that it can get the oxygen that Dan said that it really needed. But the real issue is don't give up no matter what the odds are. Good advice. Victor, if our listeners wanted to follow up with you at all, is there a, a way they can easily do that? Sure. On my on my email site, it's Vic, VKJ10 at AOL.com. The 10 is a one zero. VKJ10 at AOL.com. Uh, very good. And, and Dan, as he said, is, that, uh, is it WBZ.com or WBZRadio.com? No, it's just simply um, w- uh, WBZ.com, uh, our webpage, which is probably the best place people can email me directly if they'd like. Uh, lawyers around the country more than welcome to hear from them. is WBZ.com slash Nightside, which is the name of my, uh, my radio show, which is on 8 to midnight, Monday through Friday, East Coast time. WBZ.com slash Nightside. Get you right there. I I listen as often as I can. It's a great program. Thanks, Bob. Well, I've been honored to have uh, both of you on this program. You're both both heroes to me, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and congratulations for uh, uh, the closing chapter, in this case, finally being reached. That, uh, of course, does it for this week's program. We always like to remind our listeners that they can find all of our programs, this one and past recorded programs at thelegaltalknetwork.com on iTunes as well, and that you can now get CLE credit for listening to our program by going to the Legal Talk Network and clicking on the West Legal Ed Center icon you'll find there. Uh, So I hope you will do that, and uh, please join us again next week for another program on another interesting legal topic. I look forward to seeing you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.